Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. This is a special report about a case that boggles the mind. A story about an incredible miscarriage of justice. A story about FBI cover-ups with mob informants and hidden evidence. And a story about a reporter and a lawyer whose tenacity led to freeing a man who spent nearly 30 years in jail, wrongly convicted of murder. And now the last chapter of federal judges ruling in the case in Boston that is quite extraordinary. Sound like a plot for a movie? Well, no, this is very real. That man that I'm talking about is Joe Salvati from the North End in Boston. He was convicted of a 1965 gangland murder of Teddy Deegan, and he did spend 29 years, eight months, in a maximum security prison, separated from his family, deprived of a normal life, and all the time he was innocent. And the truth was that Salvati was framed. Attorney Victor Garrow believed Salvati was innocent and spent decades making everyone else believe it. And CBS Boston reporter Dan Ray's investigative reports kept that light shining on this story. Piece by piece, the truth was revealed. And Salvati's sentence was first commuted. He was freed from prison in 1997 and cleared in 2001. Now a federal judge in Boston is ruled in a civil case brought against the U.S. government for wrongful imprisonment. And that's what we're talking about today. The FBI knew Salvati was innocent. The FBI knew that mobster Joe the Animal Barboza falsely implicated Salvati and three other men in the murder while protecting FBI informant Vincent Palemi, who was actually one of Deegan's killers. Now, Judge Nancy Gertner has ordered the government to pay a record $101.7 million for its role in wrongfully sending Salvati and the three other men to prison, two of whom died in prison in this case. Now, from the bench, Judge Gertner ruled. She said it took 30 years to uncover this injustice. This case is about intentional misconduct, the framing of innocent men. The government's position, in a word, absurd, Judge Gertner said. Well, those are strong words about the U.S. government. And I've just scratched the surface of this story, of course, because I want to get to our three guests today who tell you much, much more. Please welcome Joe Salvati from the north end of Boston. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for taking the time today. Also, please welcome Attorney Victor Garrow of Medford, Massachusetts, Victor, thanks for giving us your time today. Always nice to be with you, Luann. And last but not least, my former colleague and esteemed investigative reporter, Dan Ray, who is also a lawyer. Hi, Dan. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Lou. You know that. Now, Joe, let's start with you. I know lots of people have asked you this, so please indulge me. You were 34 years old when you were arrested. Now you are 75. What did you think when you heard Judge Gertner's words after this really very long journey? very powerful words and uh, when she was given her uh, uh, that piece that she read then I would turn around to my family and I got like a little numb and I I didn't hear the the end of it and I turned to my wife and asked her what did she say and she repeated the amount and uh, you know I was happy you know I was happy for my my family and my friends Victor and Dan who's been with us so long and Victor has been with us for 30 years pro bono, but uh, it took 40 years to get an answer that should have never uh, uh, never happened for something that never happened. 
this is an, this is United States. This is a United States of America. The very people that are supposed to protect you are are against you. They hide behind their badge and they and, and they and they, they lie and, and and they deceive people and uh, for their their own benefits. This should never happen here. And let's hope it never happens again. But I guess it does. It happens all over the world. Well, Joe, let me ask you, your award in this case was $29 million. I'm not sure there's even a way to ask you about the money because it certainly can't give you or your family back any of the life experiences that you missed. But can you talk about that a little bit? Well, like you said, it never give you back the, the, the time that uh, was missed. And uh, you ask me if I want the money, sure, I want the money. You know, it's not justice because there is no justice in this case. I want my family to have things they never had, my grandchildren, my children who waited for hand-me-downs all the years I was away, and, and uh, you know, something for the future for them. Thanks, Joe. Now, Victor, I know I, I have left a lot of detail out of my preface, but let's talk about the civil case. Besides the fact that it is a great victory, what does Judge Gertner's ruling mean? Well, first of all, uh, I was involved with this case since about 1977, and it's been a 30-year odyssey. Uh, what, what I find the most unbelievable aspect of this case to which the judge talked about in her decision is this. And listen to the words that I'm going to use. Teddy Deegan was killed on March 12th of 1965. From March of 1965, the FBI has had in their possession, and as we talk now, still have in their position, evidence that my client was innocent. Now, they have that from two different sources. One source is from about four or five uh, entrusted informants who they believed in and they dealt with, and two from an illegal wiretap for three and a half years on a Raymond Patriarca in Providence, Rhode Island, who at that time was the alleged head of the New England crime family and that he was in charge of it. They had FBI agents monitoring every hour and every day and every minute that Raymond Patriarca had people in his office and were talking to him. They made notes, they made logs, and they took tape recordings. From that information and the information from the informants, they knew that my client was innocent. That information was sent up to J. Edgar Hoover, who also knew that my client was innocent. During the three-and-a-half-month trial, the government raised the following defense to that. This was their position. We had no duty to disclose to Mr. Salvati, nor to the prosecutors in the state, that we had this evidence. We had no duty to disclose that. When the judge first heard that, she says, would you please repeat that once more for me? And the government repeated, and she said, you're not serious, are you? You really believe that? And that just shows the arrogance 
to this day of the Department of Justice, the FBI, in this case. To them, they still have not acknowledged they've done anything wrong, even though the harshest words that I've ever seen in my 41 years as a trial attorney for a judge to come out and say that their defenses are absurd. It is quite extraordinary. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Daniel, let me bring you in here. This, I, I know your first report um, about this case was over a decade ago, and, and your first interview with Joe was in prison, and I'm going to try to remember maybe 93? March of 93. Well, it would have been probably, yes. It was, uh, uh, no, excuse me, the interview, the actual interview date was May 5th, 1993. Gotcha. I first started, uh, met Victor uh, in the office of Dean Ron Cass. Both Victor and I are graduates of Boston University Law School, and Dean Cass brought us together in March of 1993. And, you know, we, you and I spoke later that day, Luke, because you were my, my supervisor at work. I do remember that, and I, and I do remember you doggedly producing repeated revelations in these investigative reports over the years. And I want everybody to know that in her ruling, and this is very unusual from a, from the bench for a judge to mention a news reporter, but she did. She mentioned you and your reports, and that's certainly unusual. But tell us how you would characterize this ruling. You, you've seen a lot of rulings come down on a lot of different issues. What do you think about it? Well, to, to me, um, Judge Gertner, who's a highly respected federal judge, uh, federal district court judge, uh, uh, very experienced defense attorney before she uh, donned the robes. Uh, she acknowledged uh, my work in the case. She certainly acknowledged Victor Garrow's work uh, on behalf of um, his client, and she also acknowledged the chief judge in the, in the district here, Mark Wolf, uh, whose hearings in the late 1990s uh, contributed to a this information coming forward. I mean, that's the 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 ruling is in my in, in a word breathtaking. I thought that she wrote a magnificent opinion. It's 220 pages, but there's a jury way of trial, so therefore she was the trier of both fact and law. And Judge Gerdner, who all of the lawyers acknowledge is the smartest lawyer in the courtroom, uh, she took uh, contemporaneous notes during the trial. Uh, she made findings of fact, uh, which which will which will bind any any appeal appellate uh, any appeal that the Justice Department makes, uh, and she basically concluded that this wasn't just a wrongful conviction, but this was an intentional intentionally wrongful conviction. It wasn't just uh, as she said, someone who uh, started a fire uh, and walked away. It was really someone who, in, in her opinion, she she sort of. Um, uh, analogized it to someone who not only started the fire, but uh, then uh, fanned the flames, poured gasoline on the fire, didn't call it in. And, you know, the, the, the federal officials here, they they covered up uh, the, the, all the wrong that they had done, although, again, there were records that were, that were discovered by a federal grand jury back in late 2000, which were turned over to uh, Attorney Garrow. Uh, it, it just a breath. It's a breathtaking ruling. I mean, this is this is a story that every American should really take to heart because what happened to Joe Silvati could have happened to any one of us. I'm, a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, well, he's an Italian guy from the North End. He must have been involved in this in some way." Absolutely not. This this was a a totally innocent man who was ripped from the arms of his family by our FBI and our and back in in the 1960s. As Victor Garrow has said many times, the, uh, the cover-up continued to the 1970s through commutation petitions that uh, Attorney Garrow and others have filed on behalf of these defendants, uh, all the way up through the congressional hearings uh, in, the, in the early years of this decade, and again, even to today. 
this is uh, this is still continuing on. Uh, the Justice Department has a right to appeal, but Judge Gerdner characterized this decision as absurd. Why would the Justice Department want to appeal this decision, string it out more for four men who, uh, two men who are still alive, two of whom have deceased, but two men who are in their in their seventies? What what purpose will be served there uh, for the Justice Department to take my tax money, your tax money, the tax money of all of your listeners, and and in, and engage in an exercise um, which is uh, which again can, continues this malicious, wrongful prosecution in its own perverted way? I I think that's the question that that needs to be answered by the Justice Department and needs to be answered quickly. And by the way, if they do appeal this decision, interest on the decision is going to run. So my tax money, your tax money, the tax money of your listeners are going to continue to be poured down this black hole. Joe, I want to bring in here, I remember, I'm going to flip, flip it back and forth a little bit here between the past and, and, and what we're talking about with the ruling. But Joe, I remember when you said in your first interview with Danny Ray, you told him, and I'm going to quote here for the people who may or may not have seen it. And Joe said, I would look you in the soul and tell you, I never conspired with any man or a group of men to take another man's life. Do you remember that, Joe? And Victor, you too? Oh, yeah. That was, um, I was there when that interview was done. I've been with Joe every place uh, and any time that he's uh, either been interviewed, uh, either in prison or, or outside of prison. Uh, I have become very close uh, with the family. They are my family. Uh, uh, I said in my closing argument to Judge Gertner that Joe and I have gotten old together in this case and that all we've ever sought is justice, and we asked the court to give us that justice, and she did give us this justice. But let me go back, and you're going back in history. I'd like to go back to a time when uh, a very a very happy day on uh, January 30th of 2001, when all the charges against Joe were finally dismissed. Uh, we went outside the courtroom, and the, uh, of course there was a mass media presence, and they uh, let them ask questions of Joe, Marie, and the kids, and and it was their day. And then the media asked me uh, how I felt about this day. And they said to me, you know, this has got to be one of the happiest days of your life, Victor. And I looked at them, and um, they've been for the press follows me everywhere. Thank God that they tell the story. And I said, no, ladies and gentlemen, it's the saddest day of my life. And they looked at me quizzically. I said, you don't understand. This means that everything that I've been saying since 1977 is true that our government conspired to put this man away in prison for over 30 years. That means that he was deprived of his wife and his ch four children for 30 years. His wife was denied his presence for 30 years, and the four young children were denied their father's presence for 30 years, and it was intentionally done. I said, I don't think it's that happy a day. I'm happy for the family, and I'm happy that it's done. But to me, it's a sad day because all the conspiracies that I brought up in the, 19th, in the late 70s all have proven to be true. When I first took the case on, and I met Joe for about three hours the first time I saw him, and I took the case on, all my friends told me I was nuts, that I was going to take on the FBI, the federal government, the Justice Department. And, and Vic, you're not even an organized crime lawyer. I, I do white-collar criminal defense work. But I said, there's something really wrong with this case. And it's proven to be everything that I've said, every conspiracy that I have mentioned, all of the evidence that I've found and Dan has found with me, and the investigative reporting that he did, 
we were able to put together an unbelievable package. And what happens is people ask me the question, Victor, is this an isolated case? And I want the listeners to understand what I'm going to say. I want them to hear this. Do I believe this is an isolated instance? Not for one second. Why? We have evidence that the disgraced FBI agent, H. Paul Rico, who got Barboza to flip to become an informant witness, that he went around the country instructing other FBI agents how to turn murderers into informants and how to use them against organized crime and how to make deals with them. Now, some of y'all listeners probably have never heard about this case, and I asked them the following question. How come you have not heard about this case? You mean it wasn't carried in your newspapers? It wasn't carried on your radios? It wasn't carried on your TVs? Gee, I wonder why. I wonder why. Do you think that I, because I know what's going on, they don't want the rest of the country to start questioning, wait a second, how come this fellow has never been arrested and he's like an organized crime? How come he's like Teflon and he always gets away? And all we have to do is to find the cities and the states where they don't know anything about it. And I'm saying to you that what happened here in Boston has happened elsewhere, and that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that if more and more people learn about this, they might start calling me and say, Victor, how did it happen? And that's what they don't want to have inquiry about. Danny, I know Judge Gertner said the FBI considered the four men, including Joseph out of here, quote, collateral damage. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I, I know Victor has, and, and I'd just like to get your read on it. Well, I think what Judge Gertner basically was saying that as far as the FBI was concerned, that the ends justified the means. Uh, and, and I think that, that she's probably correct in that. But I, I would take it one step further. Uh, these FBI agents all themselves had a tangible benefit from this this fraudulent uh, uh, investigation and fraudulent trial because the FBI agents in question, Paul H. Paul Rico, who's now dead, he died in Tulsa uh, in a jail cell in Tulsa after having been indicted for murder. Uh, wonderful man that he was. Uh, his partner, who's still alive today and is walking free, Dennis Condon, uh, they received, and, and others along along the way, this was the beginning of the corruption in the FBI office here that extended through John Conley, who's now on trial for a murder. He's going to be facing trial for murder uh, in the state of Florida. Uh, so you have you know, FBI agents accused, uh, two of them in the same office, in the same general time frame, accused of murder. These FBI agents benefited, however. They received commendations, letters of uh, uh, congratulations from the director himself, uh, the esteemed J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, they received uh, promotions. They received uh, increases in their salary, bonuses. These folks basically uh, were, were living a better life uh, based upon the fraudulent work that they were engaged in. This was, um, they were, these folks were collateral damage. That's, that's no question about that. And the FBI's war on crime or war on the mafia, Judge Gruden is correct. But there was more than collateral damage going on here. Paul Rico and Dennis Condon, uh, they were improving their lot in life as they were consigning innocent men like Joe Salvati to 30 years of incarceration. Hard to believe that such an environment could, could go on for so long. And- Luann, let me say one other thing to you. 
with all the criminal wrongdoing that we have uncovered, and there's quite a deal of it, not one person involved in this case from the federal government has ever been charged with a crime that has gone on since 1967. Not one. We have evidence that we put into trial that H. Paul Rico, in a case in 1970, suborned perjury and committed perjury. And that was found by the Supreme Court of Rhode Island in 1988. From the evidence that was subpoenaed in the congressional hearings on our case and evidence introduced at trial, the FBI, nor the Justice Department, nor the Office of Professional Responsibility ever investigated H. Paul Rico's criminal behavior that was brought out by the Rhode Island Supreme Court. What it is, Luann, it says is this, we protect our own, and no one's going to come after any one of us, even when they commit a crime, because we don't do anything wrong, and we'll never admit that we've done anything wrong, even though the evidence speaks for itself. And the, the other point I want to add, Victor, is that remember this, Lou, there were... Uh, four men in this case wrongfully convicted for this murder. Two of them, uh, Louis Greco and Henry Chimelio, uh died while in prison. They never saw the light of day. Joe Salvati and Peter Lamoni thankfully did survive and walked out of prison uh, and now have had their names cleared. And obviously uh, everything that, that Victor has talked about over these years, uh, Judge Gertner has found to be true. But here's something that the public probably doesn't think about. What happened to the men who committed these crimes? They were never punished. They were never indicted. They were never tried. They were, in some cases, top echelon FBI informants. So they were allowed to continue, as opposed to being convicted for the crimes they committed, they were allowed to continue their reign of terror on the streets of Boston. What a great scam. Put the innocent uh, in prison and, and allow the guilty to go free. That was the Absolutely model of the FBI Boston, Boston office. Hard to know the good guys from the bad guys. Well, also think of this, Louis. In my in my closing argument before the judge, with the, all the information that the FBI had that that that, that Salvati was innocent as well as the others, during the 1960s when we had the indictments and the trial, silence by the FBI, in the 70s when there was motions for new trials in district court, I mean in the uh, Superior Court, Supreme Court of Massachusetts, the Federal District Court the Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court of the United States in the 70s, the FBI was silent. All the years of the 80s when we were going for, when I was going for commutations, they were silent. All in the 90s when we started making motions for new trial, had hearings before the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, and con- uh, hearings before Judge Markworth. In the 2000s when we had um, congressional hearings concerning everything that was going on. Do you understand what this really does to say to the judicial system? Here is the FBI that knows the truth, but is allowing the federal government to sit idly by, knowing what they know, and that, I say, is they've made a mockery of every judge and of every court in both the state and federal and the Supreme Court of the United States. What has that to say about our judicial system? They have gotten away with an unbelievable criminal wrong, 
and have gone skate have gone free up until now, and that they're the ones that have upset the entire judicial system, not to mention the stories that they had given out to pre- to the press for decades. I say that they not only owe apology to these four men, they owe an apology to the citizens of the United States because of what was put in the newspapers. They owe it to the newspapers and to the media, and they definitely owe it to the judiciary because they have made a mockery of the judiciary. That, that's a very good point, Victor. Now, John, I want to get to you in just one second, but I want to ask Dan um, one quick question here. What Victor's talking about, Dan, is um, a, a, a pretty big task. Do you think Judge Gertner's ruling opens the door for that, and do you think it's even realistic to think that criminal charges could be brought against someone in the FBI? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I think that if the um, if the past is prologue, uh, we, we have learned that, that the FBI agents uh, will not be prosecuted in this case, although, again, this was a capital case. Uh, and so even though uh, statute of limitations uh, can often run on, you know, crimes of perjury or fraud, uh, when you're talking about a capital case, uh, the, the question about any sort of a statute of limitations, I think, may, may very well arguably go out, go out the window. The, the issue here that's interesting is that, as you know, Lou, there were congressional hearings. You know, you listen to Victor or you listen to me or you listen to Joe, and if, if some of your listeners out there are going to be saying, oh, you know, this is impossible, These, this really happened. And there were congressional hearings in Washington and from 2001 to 2003, and a panel of 40 members of Congress, the House Government Reform Committee. There wasn't one panel member, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, who in any way, shape, or form tried to defend the actions uh, of the FBI. As a matter of fact, uh, the chairman of the committee at the time, Dan Burton, who's a conservative Republican from Indiana, who grew up loving J. Edgar Hoover and loving the FBI, and like St. Paul on the road to, road to Carthage, once he realized the truth of it all, he became Hoover's greatest critic. He, along with John Lewis, a uh, very highly respected liberal Democratic congressman from Atlanta, uh, John Lewis marched with Dr. King at Selma. Uh, See, so these two men from sort of both ends of the political spectrum, from the two parties, filed legislation to take J. Edgar Hoover's name off the FBI building, and that died in Congress. And when you when you when you realize that even though members of Congress know what has gone on here, um, that the, the, there is not sufficient backbone amongst uh, a majority members of Congress to take up this issue, take Hoover's name off the FBI building, put it on George Bush's desk, uh, and 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 you know let's eradicate uh, this stain from our history. Uh, everybody knows that Jagger Hoover was was. Everything that he wasn't, whatever, everything that he, he claimed to be. His name should have been off that building 30 years ago. It certainly should be off the building today. And if there are listeners uh, out there t- today who are hearing this broadcast uh, and they know members of Congress, ask them, members of Congress, tremendous inertia here not to look back and say, this was what was done here was wrong. I mean, when, when innocent Japanese Americans were incarcerated at the beginning of World War II, that wrong has now been recognized uh, and to some extent, to whatever extent it could be, rectified. Those folks were imprisoned um, for you know a few months or, or a couple of years. Horrific uh, uh, action by the government. 
this is is many times that. Um, but again, this was done by the FBI in the name of fighting organized crime. It was a snare and a delusion. It was it was a fraud. It was a sham. It needs to be recognized for that. And Jay Hoover's name has to should come off the FBI building so that we can reconcile ourselves with history. We have always in this country recognized mistakes have been made in the past. You know, the slavery of the the slavery of the early 1900s had to be recognized by had to be. Uh, rectified, I should say, by a great civil war. Uh, there have been constitutional amendments that have uh, been passed, uh, given, giving women the right to vote. So we, as a society, have an ability to formally recognize you know, the bad things that were done in the name of this government in the past. This is the latest thing that we now realize actually happened. It is now time to rectify that, and rectify it by deciding not to move on this appeal, to give these men their due and allow them to continue with their lives and whatever is left of their lives, whatever God has left to, to give Mr. Salvati and Mr. Lamoni, and also to, to, to rectify the, the injustice of Jay Hoover's name appearing on a public building, an absolute disgrace. A very good point, Dan. I think even Judge Gertner said in her ruling something to the effect that no man's liberty is indispensable, and clearly that should be, if it's not, a priority for a lot of people to articulate um, their opinions about that. Joe, I want to ask you a question, um, because you lived it. Uh, you know, Dan lived it, and Victor lived it, and, and for a good time, you know, I uh, I helped out a, a little at BZ. But you lived it. You were, you were in prison. Um, and I know there were there were lots of high points, and it might have been like a roller coaster when the Chelsea police report was discovered. That was a pivotal step, and then three new witnesses came forward. That was a big leap forward. And then in 2000, the FBI memos came out uh, with information that proved the innocence of you and the three other men. How did you hang in there emotionally for that? Well, you have to have a lot of strength. I had. Uh... My wife, the glue of the family that kept everybody together, and Victor always gave us hope. And uh, when they slammed that door in our face, Victor went and dug up some more stuff. And uh, that door was slammed often, and uh, we just kept going. And then the one word we had was that hope. And uh, you never give up. Never, never give up. And I know Marie is a very strong woman. And Marie is very, very strong with the family. And my children never never gave up on us, and they never thought for one minute that their father was guilty. And I just want to add one thing to what Victor and Dan said. Uh, they'll never apologize. Judges, even when Judge Hinkle had to read her uh, uh, dismissal against me, uh, she was you know, very disappointed in being an ex-federal prosecutor. She, you know, it was an insult you know, that they would do a thing like this. But she had to read it. Now, judges will uh, apologize. Uh, uh, congressmen will apologize for the FBI. Senators will apologize for them. And they still think they've done nothing wrong. They took 40 years away from me, 30 and 40, 10 years that I've been out waiting. You know, Luann, I want to say something about Joe. Joe and I uh, have become very, very close, dear friends. We are family to each other. I want you said, how did Joe get along in prison. How do they do this? I want to give you an example of a story because it was a sad story at the beginning, but I think it tells a lot about Joe's character and how Joe and I got along for so many years. Probably, I argued the case uh, for a motion for the trial before the Massachusetts Supreme Court in February 
of uh, 1995. And the decision came down on June 12th of 1995, which happened to be his wife's birthday. On her birthday, this decision came out. And they found against me and uh, denied a motion for new trial. And the district attorney of Middlesex County said at that time that what Garrow was trying to do was wrong. He was trying to rewrite history. And that we are there to uh, right wrongs, and we have rewritten history the correct way. Now, when Dan did the story that day, and, uh, and we were in my office, and it was uh, a pretty tough day with Marie and uh, Maria. They were crying, and I got Joe on the telephone, and Dan did the story from here, and it was a very sad day, and so after uh, we did the interviews and went through, I went down to prison to see Joe, as I always did several times. Um, I don't even know if you can count how many times I went down over the 30 years to see Joe. And, and let me tell you the measure of the man. This is what's happened. Uh, I go into prison, and I meet with him uh, in a little alcove of where, the, uh, 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 where all the people uh, meet the, the prisoners, their families. And I go over to see Joe. And the first words out of his mouth to me are as follows. Hey, Victor, I thought you were a good lawyer. When the, why the hell am I still in prison? When are you going to get me out? <laughs> and we hugged. Yeah, we shed a few tears together. But that's the measure of the man. He, was, he, would be, uh, he lived, like you said, on, on my four little letters, H-O-P-E. And I told him I would always find another way and another strategy to keep going because I wouldn't quit no matter how many doors were shut in my face. Joe and I, he knew everything that I was doing because I, always, I would always tell him what my next strategy was, my next move was, and we worked as a team together because I went down so many times we would talk about it and we'd plan things. I would tell him what I was doing, and he would offer some uh, maybe some suggestions, and I always listened to Joe as Joe always listened to me, and we did work as a team for all those years. Uh, but I want to make a statement for everybody to understand how important it was to bring Dan Ray into this story and for you who was his uh, superior and allowed these stories to be told. I had long known that the federal government hates two things. They hate congressional oversight and they hate media exposure. And I guess I've become an expert in both. Uh, when I brought Dan on, uh, and I finally got the press involved with this in 1993, the day that Dan said that he would come on board and do it, I went down to prison to see Joe. And uh, this was one of the most emotional times that uh, we ever had in prison, Joe and I. Because uh, Joe was waiting with bated breath, was I able to get somebody in, in the press to help us out. I went and saw Joe, and I went to him, and I saw him, and I explained everything that had happened, and I said, Joe, uh, Dan Ray of Channel 4, they're going to do the story, and they're going to be with us. Joe, I'm going to get you out of prison. I just don't know when, but Joe, the power of the press, we're going to get you out. Well, we hugged, and, and we both cried that day. That was a very emotional day. And I will say this, without the media exposure that Dan Ray gave to us, we probably might have never got out of prison, and maybe all of the, the FBI would have got in the way with the, all the chicanery and the criminal wrongdoing they did. The power of the press is unprecedented. 
There's uh, a lot of truth to that. Thank you, Victor. Danny uh, worked very hard at this. I know very much. And and just Richard, as you thank, said, thank you very much for those comments, Victor. Um, and uh, they come from uh, my hat. You know, Dan, we've always said, and Joe knows that uh, I carry my hat on my sleeve, and I say and I do what I think is right. And uh, people have to know that there, uh, it's not easy sometimes to get the press to go with you. And you know, I'm a ferocious uh, advocate for my client and his family. But it took someone like you to believe in what I was saying and then looking at all the evidence that I had given you and other evidence that you found when we put it all together, it was inescapable that Joe had been terribly wrong. Well, you know, I do remember, Victor, you mentioned that day when the Suffolk County District Attorney uh, said you were trying to rewrite history, which uh, you weren't trying to rewrite history. You're trying to uncover the truth. And there was a big rock on top of it. And congratulations to all three of you for doing that. Uh, you did a great service to um, all of us in the Boston area in the United States and anybody who believes in the justice system. I want to thank all three of our guests. Thank you, Joe Silvati, for taking the time very much. Thank Attorney you, Victor Garrow, thank you so much, Victor. I'm always glad to be with you, Louie, anytime. And Dan, I can't thank you enough for helping us tell this extraordinary story. You're very welcome, Lou, anytime. I have one last comment from Judge... Gertner's ruling that I think everybody uh, would agree with, and she is quoting another Justice Brandeis in another case, and she said in her ruling, if the government becomes a lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for law. It invites every man to become a law unto himself, and it invites anarchy. Thanks for joining us today. We thank you for listening to this special report. You can also read more about the details of this story on the website of WBZ-TV, where Dan's reports aired for more than a decade. This is Luann Reed. You're listening to The Legal Talk Network.